This is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of media for social change. I'm Elisa Hernandez. And I'm Matthew Brown. The United States incarcerates more people than any country in the world. Last year alone, over 500,000 youth were sent to juvenile detention centers. The incarceration of youth from an early age is part of a process known as the school to prison pipeline. Tonight, we bring you a local community-led dialogue called Transforming the School to Prison Pipeline, sponsored by three Albuquerque organizations. We'll hear from two men who know firsthand what incarceration does to a person, but now dedicate their lives advocating for at-risk youth. Fleet Mall served 16 and a half years, and renowned poet Jimmy Santiago Baca served six years in prison. And as always, we'll also take a look at the local events happening in our community. But first, let's jump into some music with Freedom by Anthony Hamilton and Elena Boynton. Felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders. Pressure to break or retreat at every turn. Facing the fear that the truth had discovered. Welcome back. This week, we're talking about the school-to-prison pipeline and the effects it has on our communities. Recently, we had the privilege of attending the Transforming the School-to-Prison Pipeline Dialogue. This event was held at La Mesa Presbyterian Church and was sponsored by Mindful New Mexico and Families for Peace. Here's Sidney Lamb, founder of Mindful New Mexico, introducing Fleet Mall and Jimmy Santiago Baca. My name is Sidney Lamb, and I'm the founder and the director of Mindful New Mexico. And I have the audacious belief that collective action that is rooted in mindfulness is a radical approach to poverty and violence. And I want to make New Mexico a showcase for how mindfulness can transform our society. And it's with that idea and with that vision that I invited Fleet Mall and Jimmy Baca to come and to share with us that there are different ways to do things than the way that we've always done it. And there are ways to make systems change, even if it is a step at a time and it's just a crack rather than a smash of the pipeline. But those cracks, we know, can have significance. Both of our speakers this evening are great examples of people who learned how to turn the consequences of a poor decision or a poor choice in their life into opportunities to serve others on a big scale. Both men served time in federal prison. Fleet served 14 and a half years and Jimmy served six and a half years. While Fleet was in prison, he provided hospice care to dying inmates as an inmate himself. And from that created the National Hospice, Prison Hospice Association. And then in his post-prison life, he's dedicated his life as a successful consultant and social entrepreneur. Jimmy Santiago Baca is one of New Mexico's finest, and he was born in Santa Fe County, lived on the streets, and ended up in prison. He didn't know how to read and write before he went to prison and taught himself while he was there. Since then, he has become a poet of our time, not just for New Mexico, but for all of our country. And he's received numerous literary awards, both nationally and internationally, 
And he's a nonstop poet and author, and he just produced his second film that's based on his own memoir. And when he isn't writing a new poem, or writing a new book, or writing a screenplay, he's out in the community through his not-for-profit Cedar Tree, out teaching, writing poetry, and inspiring young people in schools that they can be more and they can make something of their lives. Please join me in welcoming Fleet Mall and, G and Jimmy Santiago Baca. Thank you, Sydney, and thank you so much for organizing this. Uh, all of this, um, this kind of good works is what continually gives all of us uh, inspiration and encouragement to keep putting one foot in front of the other. So, you know, I want to talk today a little bit about the issue. I know you all are more than familiar with it, but I just want to name a few things, and then we'll talk about maybe what some of the answers are. And then I'm going to turn it over to Jimmy, who can really speak from experience as, as uh, someone who grew up as a young person in the worst of circumstances right here in Albuquerque and went right through that pipeline into prison and into, into some ser very serious consequences and miraculously became the incredible poet he is today. You know, you got a couple of ex-cons up here on the stage, and we're considered dangerous. We used to be both be considered quite dangerous. You know, I, uh, I think I'm kind of milk toast anymore, but fortunately, I think Jimmy's still a very dangerous man because our poets are, <laughs> our poets are really some of the most dangerous people alive, and thank goodness for those, for those dangerous people that, that write the truth in ways that can shock us, inspire us, peel back the layers of denial, and, and open our hearts again and cause us to really think and to not turn away. That's the most important thing. The message is to not turn away, no matter how hard it is to be with what we see and what's in the news every day and what's in our communities every day. If we can simply not turn away, things will change. So we've all heard the data about the prison system. It's become a self-perpetuating industry, you know, called the prison industrial complex. Uh, they have their own lobbyists. If you go to the American Correctional Association annual conference, it's like any big industry conference in a huge hotel. You go into the uh, exhibitor arena and it's a people selling all the gadgetry of criminal justice and corrections. It's, a, it's an $80 billion a year industry. And of course, like every industry, they lobby the state and federal legislatures and they lobby for tough sentencing laws, not for any social, even even any enlightened, much less even really any intentional social engineering purpose, but simply to drive that growth curve of the industry. They claim they don't do it, but they get caught doing it again and again and again, and anybody who's been a legislature at the state or the national level knows absolutely that it goes on every day in the halls of our legislatures and in the offices of our legislators. So it became this self-perpetuating industry and just growing and what it needs is bodies. And it's really impersonal. It just needs bodies wherever it's going to get them. And it's just quite natural the way that that kind of worked its way back through our culture and into our school systems to create our school systems as a feeder system for that industry. That is what's happened. It's been, you know, you could call it intentional. There are some ways in which it has been. You could call it a great conspiracy. But in some ways, it's organic as well. It just evolves out of the fear-based mind, which despite our innate basic goodness as human beings, we're also programmed for survival. I mean, that's job one for any organism. And our neurobiology is programmed to survival and to operate from fear, except when it doesn't, right? So unless we're actively programming ourselves for resilience and caring and mindfulness and love and connection and community, 
then that fear-based survival program starts to take over. And it creates the fear-based survival and shame-based and punishment reward social systems that we have. So that prison industry has naturally recruited the school system as a feeder system, you know, as the kind of farm teams for, for the major leagues. Uh, and you know, this is, this is a, it's, it's, we can talk about it in this kind of metaphorical language, but it's, a, it's an absolute tragedy. And the way that it is, you know, manifested coming out of the, the drug war and the, the drug laws and so forth of the 1970s and 1980s and the zero tolerance policy, we began taking this zero tolerance policy into schools. We are locking up, you know, I'm sure you all are aware of this, but you know, we suspended last year 8,000 preschoolers. We suspended 3 million children from school last year, half of them children of color. And we actually suspended 8,000 preschoolers. Can you imagine that? And we walk five-year-olds and six-year-olds and seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds out of school in handcuffs. The zero tolerance policy and bringing the police into schools has allowed teachers and, you know, bless, bless the teachers. They work hard, they're under-resourced, they're not trained right, right? But nonetheless, it has allowed them to abdicate their responsibility. It's allowed the school administrators and the school counselors to abdicate the responsibility. And in many cases, it's allowed the parents to abdicate the responsibility. Instead, people just call the cops. The cops all are right there in school. Right? Kids have been arrested and charged with sex crimes for kissing another student at the age of seven or eight. A peer, the same age for writing on their dress, I love my friend so-and-so, arrested, for throwing a tantrum, tied up, you know, wrists and legs tied up with the plastic ties that they do, and in some case, maced, and then taken off to a psychiatric hospital and forced to have a psychiatric evaluation, right? And then charged with battery against a police officer, five and seven-year-olds, you know, Big police officers scared to death of a five and seven-year-old. Now, bless the police, they have tough jobs too, and they're under assault. But come on, five and seven-year-olds are not capable of battery on a police officer, right? So this is what's been going on, and it just feeds into the prison system. But there's an answer. You know, New York State, bless them, is considering, and, and there's going on in many states around the country, New York State is just getting ready now to pass a law that you cannot suspend or arrest kids preschool through second or third grade, I'm not sure which. Now, they had already passed it for preschoolers in New York. Preschoolers don't get suspended. It'll soon become illegal to suspend uh, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, and maybe third grade, right? Um, you know, that's a start. But we have to raise our voices and demand these kind of legislative changes. We have to demand policy changes. We have to get the police out of our schools and get parents into the schools, right? The police are there because the rest of us are abdicating our responsibility. 
and we're all under assault, and we're all overworked, and we're all stressed out of our minds, and we're working two jobs, and we're working three jobs, so I'm not picking on anybody or demonizing anybody, but if we don't all pull together and get back involved with the schools, we are turning the schools over to law enforcement and to the system and to the criminal justice system. The people in our prison system were programmed to go to prison. They have been programmed to go to prison. So we are criminalizing the normal developmental processes. Adolescents have, as we all know, we may not understand the brain science, but their limbic system and their libido is on fire. And there's a reason. In evolutionary terms, we need to be going out into the world at that time. Their executive function, where we make good decision, is way behind the curve. And it takes a long time for the two to catch up. Right? And the more chaotic our emotional life is, the slower the executive function develops. The good news is mindfulness improves all of that dramatically. Dramatic results on dealing with ADHD, anxiety, depression, addiction, and with adolescence, it speeds up the process. A healthy brain is basically very integrated. And mindfulness can create brains that are dramatically more integrated for all of us. So getting basic mindfulness training for teachers and students into K through 12 education, which is catching fire and catching traction around the country. So there is an answer. We, act, we know what to do. We all know what, what it takes to raise kids. And now we know scientifically some things that can even do better with that. We just have to do it. So thank you. Fleet, I was surprised to hear how many grade school children were charged with sexual assault just for minor things like kissing in school. Thank you, Fleet, for sharing your story. It's uplifting to know that you have dedicated your life to changing the way the school system works for the youth. And I appreciate your spirit and dedication. It's so true what Fleet said about the way that children's brains develop in high-stress households. This stress affects the way that they operate in schools and also the rest of their lives. So thank you. Up next, here's You Don't Own Me by Grace featuring g Easy. You don't own me But I'm Gerald, and I can always have just what I want. She's the baddest, I would love to flaunt. Take her shopping, you know Eve Saint Laurent. But nope, nope, she ain't with it though. All because she got her own though. Boss, boss, if you don't know, she could never ever be a broke. Welcome back. Tonight we're talking about the school to prison pipeline. Now joining the conversation is Jimmy Santiago Baca, native New Mexican, renowned poet, and author. Well, I can attest to the, uh, to the effectiveness of mindfulness because uh, Fleet's one of my role models. He's got this ability to make you feel, um, comes through, I guess, self-forgiveness or understanding, I'm not sure. But uh, he had this way of making me feel okay with myself. And not too many people have done that, including myself. Considering that the very moment that we are conceived, uh, more often than not, we're conceived in a sort of emotional, spiritual landscape that, uh, that predicts chaos, 
instability, drug addiction, illiteracy. I think, I think when my mother was being raped by my father, I think I picked a lot of that up in the back seat of our Ford. You know, when I came out, I came out looking in all four directions at once, thinking I was prey. And there was a predator around me somewhere. You just grow up with that. If you're a child of color, you grow up with the sense that you've, you're someone's prey. Cowards produce this kind of a society. Not people of integrity and people of honesty. Not people who love, not people who forgive, not people who cherish humanity. People who hate being human beings create this kind of society. And it takes people like us, human beings, who had to reteach ourselves what human being was after we survived the war zone that, that our American culture is. All of American culture is a war zone. If you don't learn by going to school that to get an A, you're going to have to. I mean, my grandmother was so simple. She says to me, you know what? What do you mean, Mijito? Uh, you can't compete with each other. In knowledge, you share it. Oh, no, Grandma. I'm going to take Willie. I'm going to stomp his ass with an A+. Plus. You know? So you, can't, you, you, don't, you, can't, you can't use knowledge as a weapon. And yet tell me what great successful person hasn't used knowledge as a weapon. For instance, I was advocating at the National Booksellers Association. I think there was like, uh, there was like six or 7,000 book publishers there. And I was advocating that we should, that we should encourage in our children to steal books. <laughs> you should have seen them. More, more than once I've been told, you'll never come back here again, you <laughs> And I'm like, well, I can't believe you're actually advocating that. I said, well, let me explain to you why I want everybody to go out and steal books. Because I, if you're going to build prisons, and we do, we can't use the same words that they use. We're like rats in a cage. The walls that we build around our children, they're already under siege when they're born. They're already captives. You know, if I were to ask myself, what is a wall? Is it me being eight years old, wanting to play a piano? and the nuns walk into St. Anthony's Orphanage and they want to make a good impression on, on the people who come visit us because they want to find foster homes for us. And then they say, oh, you know what? I think we'll take that white kid to play the piano. Oh, that's Lee Walker. He hates piano. But there's Jimmy Baca. Granted, the kid looks a little bit homely. That's because he's from, uh, he's from El Estacado de Estancia. Es un llanero. Es un quinacero de abicu. Where I come from. Yeah, maybe that's... But we can't put him on the piano. And that morning, I brushed my teeth the first time in four years. And I combed my hair the first time in 10 years, just so I could be picked to play the piano. But because I didn't look good, they picked Lee Walker. And the look that went between me and Lee when he walked up to the piano, I looked at him, and I loved Lee. Lee was the guy that got the swing for me. He was the fastest kid in the orphanage. This skinny little white ratty kid that used to eat his mocos. That's the kid I, that's the kid I loved. He used to hold my hand. He used to tell me, don't worry, Jimmy, there's no such thing as a devil. Because I thought all white people were devils. And then he told me, no, we're not. A little white kid who took my hand and got the swing for me. And he gave me candy. I said, dude, if you're the devil, then I'm going to be with you. Take me. Take me, you know? And Lee was like, he looked at me, and as he walked up to go up to the piano, he turned around, 
at the, at the age of nine or 10, I felt a wall from the demon go up. Who did that to us? Lee, what the hell is going on, Lee? I love you and you love me and we're homeless children. What just happened that put you over there and me here? What just happened to make us not like each other? Damn that wall. So I don't want that word wall anymore. I want to define it. I want to break it down. And it starts, I think, we have to teach these children the self-sustaining warrior traits of how to love yourself when you're alone. Because loneliness is our worst enemy. You talk to any six-year-old kid, loneliness is a killer. Self-image, loneliness. I mean, all these terrible things that eat at us like gangrene. By the time we reach 12, of course I'll freaking do math. Anything, anything to alleviate, to alleviate this horrible, horrible misery of being so alone as the one who was not wanted. And it's really bizarre because poverty means you're unwanted. Illiteracy means you're unwanted. You can translate anything into a wall makes you feel unwanted. You build walls because the other person doesn't want you. In this case, society doesn't want us. Let me best illustrate this because I'm a writer. That's what I do. Okay, so I wrote this book. I wrote something about this guy leaving prison. It was August 79, and I had finished my six-year sentence in Colorado Max Prison. And I was pacing myself, waiting on a guard to show up to escort me out. Nervous by a big, big question pulling at my heart. Was it possible for me to continue what I've been doing behind the walls with success and even make a life around it in the free world? I have to go back to 73 when I started my time and how I feared I might die because at the time I didn't give a whether I lived or died. And it was likely impossible for me to hold it together for a six-year stretch. And this seemed to bear itself out when three months into my sentence, I got into a cross with a banger trying to tax me for protection. The mother, I thought, wants to test me? And I grabbed some hardcover books and tied them around my rib cage as a shield. And I went to the yard and after taking care of my business and whipping his I went back to my cell and ripped off the armor of books around my midriff and sat on my bunk and breathed a sigh of relief. I thumbed the shank gashes gouged in the covers and stabs in the pages with a mix of simmering anger at him and gratitude that I wasn't at the moment being medevaced out on the stretcher in a helicopter to a Denver hospital or dead. An anthology of poets, Levertov, Rich, Paley, Coleman. He would have gutted me, I thought, if not for these poems. And I felt curious to at least read one since the book saved my life. What happened next was crazy. I heard my voice pronounce the words, and then as I went down the verse lines, my senses lit up like Christmas lights. And at 24 years old, you can call me naive or beguiled, but I was certain that what happened next was a direct sign from God because I experienced my first impulse to want to read and even learn to write. And the desire pitched my whole being into a charged disturbance. A divine state, if you will, jolting me with a passion to liberate myself from lifelong self-disgust of being illiterate. And I knew that I'd rather die than suffer another day as a silent savage. Even the day with absolute clarity, I recall the moment I put pencil to paper, 
a visceral fever stirred in my heart as I attempted to write my first poem, and I felt the lines appeal to a better part of me. And I embraced the part of me that had been shamed and repeatedly treated unjustly. And the more I practiced writing to myself, to the hurt parts in me, to the raging and the wounded parts in me, the more I found myself capable of loving myself. And the more the good parts of me took over the resentments and the rage and the criminal aspects of my character. I applied myself obsessively to the task of reading and writing. And with time... My customary aggression against rivals and guards lessened as the magic of poetry worked its power on my mind in a behavior-changing way. And even today I ask myself, who would ever have imagined that an arrangement of words set in a certain grammatical order had the power to unleash the strength in me to love myself and find worth in me and set the truth free that I was a human being worthy of respect and worthy of a good life. And each word I wrote broke down a lifetime of institutional conditioning and ultimately broke the cycle of self-contempt. Who would have guessed? And past midnight, a voice emerges from somewhere in the dark cell block and I sit up thinking I'm in a dream and a guard in the shadows rasp, 32581, get your shit. A clock on the wall chimed. We all turned to it thoughtfully staring. I knew what they were thinking. We were all thinking it. Time and how so much had slipped past us. That prison life is the real life. That hitting the streets is like spring break with an edge. You get messed up. You commit crimes, you take drugs in any amount, chasing the moment's pleasure, and then you're back to the real world inside the walls. And it goes on and on. But thank you so much for listening. I've got to say, Jimmy's story hit me really hard. My father actually spent four years in prison while I was growing up, and not having him around really influenced the way that I was raised. It's a powerful reminder that this system affects more than just the person being incarcerated. Thank you for sharing that, Matthew. And you're right, families are deeply impacted by incarceration as well. I appreciate Jimmy's honesty. He speaks in a way that relates to his audience. It was an honor to listen to him speak and share his powerful writing. Next up, here's Another Brick in the Wall by Pink Floyd. Welcome back. If you're just joining us here at Generation Justice, we've been listening to some community voices on transforming the school-to-prison pipeline. We'd like to thank Mindful New Mexico, Families for Peace, and La Mesa Presbyterian Church for organizing and sponsoring Transforming the School-to-Prison Pipeline. Now, it's time to take a look at all of the exciting events that are going on in our lovely community, starting with group leaders at the Albuquerque New City Church. Group Leaders is a community-led workshop that focuses on mentoring and leadership skills. This event will take place on Monday, September 12th from 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at the New City Church on 6300 San Mateo Boulevard. 
For more information, you can contact them at 505-514-0222 or send them an email at info at newcityabq.org. An event that I think is so timely is the 2016 Native American Conference on Special Education. The Native American Conference on Special Education is an informative event where Indigenous families are taught skills on how to advocate for their children in the educational system. This event will take place on Wednesday, September 14th from 8.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. at Uptown Hotel located at 2600 Louisiana Boulevard, Northeast. For more information, you can call Kelsey Woody at 505-767-6630. The month of September not only brings fall, but also our Hispanic Heritage Month. That's right, Matthew. And on Friday, September 16th, there will be live entertainment at the historic Old Town Plaza in celebration of the Cecies de Septiembre. Celebrando Nuestra Herencia, Celebrating Our Heritage, is an annual event that kicks off the National Hispanic Month celebrations. This event takes place Friday, September 16th from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Historic Old Town at 303 Romero Street Northwest. On Saturday, September 17th, is the Fall Habitat Restoration Day, where you can enjoy gardening and help New Mexico's plant habitation. Join the Rio Grande Community Farm as they plant more native and drought-tolerant species along hedgerows to support this wildlife and population habitat. This event will take place from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. at the Rio Grande Community Farm. For more information, you can call 505-916-1078 or email info at riograndefarm.org. That's it for this week's calendar. Make sure you head out to all the fun events we have going on this week. But first, let's get back to some music with one of my personal favorites. Here's Ball and Chain by Big Brother and the Holding Company. After that, we have Who Did That To You by John Legend. Welcome back. Special thanks for this week's show goes to La Mesa Presbyterian Church, Mindful New Mexico, and Families for Peace. Also, a big thank you to Fleet Mall and Jimmy Santiago Baca for sharing their stories. Production assistance for this show goes to Alicia Hernandez, Matthew Brown, George Luna Pena, Roberta Real, and Tamara Kalaki. And also, a big thank you to Camaria Umi for engineering. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, 
generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, so make sure to subscribe. We're also active on social media, so be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Funding for this week's show comes from the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, the McCune Foundation, and Con Alma Health Foundation, and of course, all of you. Thanks for listening, Woke Folk, and remember that you are loved, and tomorrow is another day. We'll leave with some more music. Here's Freedom by Beyonce featuring Kendrick Lamar. Oh, 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 oh,